Wireless Chronicle is a digital research and media project as well as an historical archive that documents prison uprisings, protests, strikes, and other disturbances within jails, prisons, and detention centers in the U.S. and Canada. Check us out at PerilousChronicle.com and follow us on Twitter, at Perilous Prisons. Welcome back to the Perilous Podcast, a news and oral history project featuring original interviews with prisoners and detainees who have participated in or witnessed protests, uprisings, and other forms of unrest behind bars. We also gather analysis and insight from researchers and advocates in an effort to build a better understanding of systems of incarceration and collective action and strategy. This week, we cover the prison evacuations in Oregon as wildfires tear through the state and down the coast. On Tuesday, September 8th, the ODOC announced on Facebook that it had evacuated 1,450 prisoners from Mill Creek, Santium, and Oregon State Correctional Institutions, which were threatened by the Beachy Creek and Lion's Head wildfires. Then on Thursday, September 10th, 1,300 female prisoners were evacuated from Coffee Creek Correctional Facility in Wilsonville to Deer Ridge Correctional Institution in Madras. In order to get a closer look at the situation, Perilous correspondent Ryan Fatika spoke with a prisoner named Brian McDonald, who was evacuated to the Oregon State Penitentiary. Brian described the conditions he is living through as the constant threat of COVID-19 collides with the dangers of smoke inhalation, lack of adequate food and medication, and the violence of the prison environment. We, Mm -hmm. as inmates, understand that this is an emergency situation and that people in the free world are also going without. And so we tolerated as much as we could. You know, people were going without medications. People with asthma are going without inhalers. In the building that I'm being kept, it's smoky inside as well as out. People are coughing. My eyes have been watering for days. We, as inmates, tried to tolerate what was going on as best we could. Perilous Chronicle is run by a small group of dedicated volunteers and very little funding. If you value our work, please support us by visiting our website and donating via PayPal or Patreon, and rate and follow us on iTunes. With your help, we can expand our efforts to track, document, and archive the stories of prisoners and detainees who are standing up for themselves in the midst of overwhelming odds. Perilous relies on crowdsourced information for our grassroots tracking and archival efforts. If you have information or are in touch with a prisoner or detainee who has witnessed or been involved in a protest or other form of unrest, please get in touch with us at info at Rebellion and bloodshed amidst Oregon prison evacuations. The newest disaster inside Oregon prisons is raging from the outside in. As one of the most severe fire seasons attacks the West Coast, prisoners across Oregon are being shuffled into substandard conditions and possible COVID-19 exposure as Governor Brown continues to deny releases. The COVID-19 pandemic is slow moving in comparison to the fires cascading across the state and threatening several major metro areas. But these two calamities are joining forces along with a seemingly steadfast governor to further endanger the lives of Oregon prisoners. The risk of infection and of death from COVID-19 has not diminished as other emergencies have escalated. This is clear in the sixth prisoner death in the Oregon system at Snake River Correctional Institute, SRCI, on September 8th. Snake River is near the Idaho border and has had a major outbreak of COVID-19, along with allegations that the majority Idaho-based staff have been flagrantly ignoring quarantine protocols. On the other side of the state, 
The fires moving quickly up and down the I-5 corridor have put several prisons in the path of destruction. On Tuesday, September 8th, the ODOC announced on Facebook that it had evacuated 1,450 prisoners from Mill Creek, Santiam, and Oregon State Correctional Institutions, which were threatened by the Beachy Creek and Lion's Head wildfires. The prisoners were evacuated to the Oregon State Penitentiary, also in Salem, where they will be housed on emergency beds throughout the institution until the threat has passed. At the time of that decision, OSP was already in the throes of its own COVID-19 outbreak. At least 143 positive cases of COVID-19 have been reported at the facility. On Thursday, September 10th, 1,300 female prisoners were evacuated from Coffee Creek Correctional Facility in Wilsonville to Deer Ridge Correctional Institution in Madras. Deer Ridge is a mixed security facility with a 774-bed minimum security unit and a 1,228-bed medium security unit. In order to accommodate the nearly 1,000 women transferred into Deer Ridge, a minimum security building not used since 2016 was opened to take in men from the larger medium security unit at Deer Ridge. The units lacked phones, adequate ventilation, and were infested with mice and mold, according to the prisoners able to get communications to the outside. Lawyers for some of the women transferred have detailed harrowing accounts of neglect and deplorable conditions during the transfer on social media. Quote, women were urinating on the bus, others bleeding through their menstrual products, end quote, one account reads. Prisoners were reportedly zip-tied for the duration of the several-hour drive between the two facilities. Upon entering, they found supplies were spread thin, including meals being offered, and that they would not be given their daily medications, some of which they are going on two days without. On Friday, September 11th, according to reporting from the Bulletin, around 200 prisoners in Deer Ridge kicked through doors and forced their way into the yard as smoke conditions became uninhabitable inside. According to an Oregon DOC news alert, all but 12 of the people originally staging the mass refusal had returned inside by 2 a.m. And while the crisis negotiation team was deployed, the DOC assured that no force was used to clear the yard. Back in Salem, prisoners continue to live in cramped conditions in which violence and deprivation are the norm. One of the prisoners who was evacuated, Brian McDonald, spoke with Perilous about his experience of the evacuation. This call is now being recorded. Okay, Brian, can you, you were recently transferred uh, or evacuated from one of the prisons in Salem to the Oregon State Penitentiary. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Well, okay, I come from um, OSCI, which stands for the Oregon uh, Oregon State Correctional Institution. And due to the fire and the smoke hazard, we were evacuated. But some of it doesn't make sense to us. We were evacuated right down the road a couple miles to the Oregon State Prison or Penitentiary, which is in Salem as well. We weren't necessarily evacuated because of fire. We were evacuated more because of smoke and air conditions. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to us because here over at OSP, the the smoke and the air conditions are the same. It's only a couple miles down the road. Um, It started on Monday night. We noticed the smoke in the air. And Tuesday morning, they came around, and they pretty much shut down OSCI and told everybody to get ready, grab your in-cell medications, you're not allowed to bring any property, no hygiene, no nothing, just the clothes on your back and your medications, and we were being emergency evacuated. 
took all day for the evacuation to happen, and they transported us down the road, like I said, to the Oregon State Penitentiary, and put us in the yard at first. Now, this first day was the start of us realizing exactly how uncomfortable this situation was going to be for us, as we didn't fully get fed. A lot of meals were being skipped. Um, a lot of meals were being shortened. Um, over the week that I've been here at the Oregon State Penitentiary, there's been multiple days where they've sent us down to the chow hall and they've handed us a piece of pizza and said that was our that that, that was your meal. Um, when we got here, OSP does not have the bed space to accommodate a whole other prison. We've been told that on the website the Department of Corrections is claiming that they have um, uh, um, space and everybody's you know got beds and stuff. When I first got here, we were kept in the yard until 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, and then we were given a sheet of blanket and a mattress and taken upstairs to the education department where they opened up classrooms and they laid us on the ground to sleep. Um, now, these classrooms are not big, and they between the three prisons that were evacuated here, it was an extra 1,600 inmates at a prison that was already pretty much full. And so... When things like COVID-19 and social distancing protection came into play, it's absolutely been thrown out the window. And I'd like to also say that OSP, the prison that we've been brought to, was one of the first prisons in the state of Oregon to have COVID-19 cases. Since we've been brought here, Coffee Creek in Wilsonville has been evacuated, which is mostly females, but there are male, male inmates up there, and there were male inmates up there who were COVID-19. They've been brought down here as well. So to start, we noticed, I mean, I was sleeping on a mat on the ground with six inches to either side, another inmate. So there's no six-foot distance. There's barely six-inch distance. And we were kept in that situation for about four and a half days. There was days where we got one meal, where we got, I mean, we, we, it was, I remember they were, I remember, I, I believe it was Thursday, it might have been Wednesday, where the officers are walking around with boxes of Costco pizza because the Department of Corrections decided to buy the officers pizza. And it was 7 o'clock in the evening, and we're watching officers walk around with an entire box of pizza. And that entire day, the only thing we had had to eat was two pancakes. It was, it, it, it was a little, it, it bothered us. You know, we mm -hmm. as inmates understand that this is an emergency situation. And that every, I mean, people in the free world are also going without. And so we tolerated as much as we could. You know, people were going without medications. People with asthma are going without inhalers. In the building that I'm being kept, it's smoky inside as well as out. And people are coughing. My eyes have been watering for days. We, as inmates, tried to tolerate what was going on as best we could.
Now, there were still fights occasionally in the hallway where people were, you know, running into each other. For some reason, now, I, I may be wrong on my days. The days are kind of blending here. It was either Wednesday, no, according to Wednesday. I believe it was Thursday. As we from OSCI went down to the chow hall, we noticed there's 30, 40 OSP inmates sitting in the chow hall. Now, half of these inmates didn't even have food in front of them. It was obvious they weren't there to eat. And if you're a prisoner and you're about to get in a fight, and there's, 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 just, there's just things that people do when they're getting ready for a fight in prison. You put your boots on, you tie them up real tight, you take your shirt off because it can be used against you to pull you down. And as you walk in here, you notice that a lot of these inmates don't even have food at their table. They're sitting there with tank tops on, their boots laced up, and they're obviously there waiting for somebody so they can attack them. I went through the chow line, I got my food, I sat down, and before I even got a bite of food in my mouth, three inmates from the OSP jumped up and attacked multiple inmates from OSCI. This is going on on the right side of the, of the prison. Officers come running, they spray their OC gas, everybody goes to the ground, there's blood everywhere, and before this fight's even done, the other side of the chow hall, three more inmates are attacking another inmate. And I believe personally that OSP was prepared and knew that this was going to happen. Because as soon as these multiple fights, they had 20 officers in there, they come in through and they spray their OC spray. And the problem with the OC spray is you get everybody who's in the fight, but I'm not a part of the fight. You're on an enclosed space, and this gas just fumigates the entire room. I'm trying to eat my food, but snot's running out my nose, my eyes are running, I'm coughing, I can barely breathe. Um... And normally you're supposed to be given a shower if you're sprayed, per the policy of the Oregon Department of Corrections. If you're sprayed, you're supposed to get a shower. I got sprayed, and I wasn't even a part of the fight, and I wasn't given a shower. I had to, 30 minutes later, find me a utility sink to bury my face under and try to wash some of this spray off. The officers walked through after the fight with backpack sprayers filled with bleach water, which is what makes me believe they were prepared for this. They knew this was going to happen, and they came through, and there was blood everywhere on the floor around my table, and they sprayed the blood, to, you know, and then they start using mops to pretty much squeegee it into the drain. This call is now being recorded. Yeah, Brian, thanks for calling back. Do you know, um, have you heard what the the long-term plan is? How long do you think that you'll be there? Um, are they going to keep you, move you to more permanent location outside Salem? Or no, actually, what's the plan? So all we get is rumors, um, but we get them from the officers, and they're being told things. This, this count that we just had, they actually did one thing different. They asked us for our assignment, our bed assignments, back at OSCI, where we're located. Um, as it goes and the way the rumors are going right now, we're actually going to be shipped back to OSCI tomorrow, which we, we think kind of shows that what the Department of Corrections has done here makes no sense. Um, they moved us not because of fire safety. They moved us because of air quality, and the air quality – tomorrow, as the way everything is going to stand, is actually going to be worse than when it was when they evacuated us. So it, 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 it shows that whatever the Department of Corrections has done here, 
it's, just, it's not making sense to us. But the rumor has it we are actually going back to our prison with worse air quality um, tomorrow. So the prison isn't communicating with you. You're not getting updates about what's going on, when you'll be moved, why you're being moved, anything like that? Oh, absolutely not. They, I mean, and, and even the officers that, you know, the officer level where the people who are, you know, their responsibility is to be with us and keep, you know, do the job, they, they don't even get um, up-to-date information. They get, like I said, rumors. And the rumors start from, you know, the dome building and the head of the Department of Corrections and things start going here. And you have a lot of cooks in this kitchen, so you have a lot of decisions being made. And then shift change happens, and you get somebody else who's in charge, and they just completely change the decision that was made earlier. It's That's what's been so just clustered about the it's, it's, Everything is just seems to be randomly done. Um, I've been moved from one location to another. I'm sleeping here. I'm sleeping there. Um, it, 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 the, the left hand is not communicating with the right hand, and we've noticed a lot of just literally at shift change. Like whatever the, uh, the, the person in charge was coming up with in the morning and the person in the afternoon seems to have a completely different plan. Um, the officers, and the officers, are, they seem to be just as frustrated with it as we are because, like, a lot of the officers here at OSP don't work at OSP. They work at OSCI. So they don't. It, it, they don't know where things are, what things are, how things are run here, so it's not all that easy for them to do their jobs appropriately as well. Um, I will say I've, I've, I've witnessed numerous assaults here, and uh, the assaults that are happening are happening in locations where there's no cameras, and the officers whose responsibility it is to keep us safe and, and, and to protect the other inmates from, you know, other inmates, they don't—they're they, not trained in this facility. They don't know where the blind spots are. They don't know where these things are. So they're allowing inmates into these sections. That my guess would be is if an OSP or Oregon State Penitentiary officer was actually working here, he would tell inmates, "Hey, you can't go in there because there's no cameras. There's no safety factor involved." Because these are OSCI workers, they don't know. So the officers know as little as we do um okay brian is there anything else that you want us to know about the circumstance um that you're in right now the one thing that i would just like the public to be aware of is a situation like this this isn't an extreme circumstance and this may be a first for the state of oregon but and and, and, and this this as as the inmates and and the people in the justice system we would like you guys and everybody in the public to recognize that, yes, this may be a first, but these kind of situations are not new to us. We are not – we are – these things happen in the prison system way too much and have been happening for decades. And it's just now that situations like our, you know, justice reform is being screamed for because of what happened with, you know, the atrocity with George Floyd. We would hope – that the public would recognize that justice reform doesn't need to just happen on a level of the police officers who arrest people. It needs to happen on throughout the entire justice process, which means the courts being in jails and all the way up to the, the, the prisons that people are held in. Uh, it, 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 we, I, I don't know how to word it appropriately. We just, we hope that when we're suffering in here, and we're hoping that our suffering can lead to 
change where people down the line don't end up suffering like this. It, 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 this we, we hope and beg for somebody to investigate this entire process that's happened here because what the Oregon Department of Corrections has said makes no sense. We believe what they've done here, and, and, and moving us here to, 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 to OSP, where COVID-19 is running rampant, they've endangered the lives of people for a budget. And this has been the way the system has run for a long time. People in the dome building and the, the administration level of departments of corrections across this country have tallies and figures and totals that they have to keep up with. They have quotas and money that they need to, and we become pawns in a game. And I personally believe that if one person from OSCI catches COVID-19 and dies because they came to OSP, and that actually can be attributed to the fact that this was done just for a budget, that's murder. That is, that is blatant murder on a level that I... I mean, so what we are begging as inmates is please investigate this situation. Please call them on their, on their nonsense and their BS that doesn't make any sense. So I, thank you for, for letting our voice be heard. We, we really appreciate that. That's one of the things that as an inmate of, of any Department of Corrections, sometimes it's hard for our voice to be heard. We would like to thank you for letting our voice be heard. And, 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 and thank the public for any assistance that they give us on this. Okay, Brian, thank you so much for your testimony. Give us a call again if, if something changes or if you want to, want to tell us more. I will. I will. I'll call you with probably within a week after we're relocated just to keep you up to date on the logistics of things. Sounds good. Okay, thanks, Brian. Take care. Of All right. Thanks a lot. last two months, there have been three hunger strikes in prison and jail facilities in Oregon, at the Lane County Jail, the Eastern Oregon Correctional Institution, and Multnomah County Detention Center. In the wake of these strikes, outside advocates have formed a coalition to address conditions in carceral facilities in Oregon. In order to better understand this work and to get some background on the situation, Perilous spoke with Ducky, a representative from Siskiyou Prison Abolition and Fight Toxic Prisons. here with Ducky, who's with Siskiyou Abolition Project and Fight Toxic Prisons. Ducky, tell us a little bit about the work that you do and the coalition that was formed recently um, between various groups in the Northwest to support the hunger strikes. Absolutely. So, like you said, my name is Ducky. I work with uh, a regional group here in Southern Oregon called Siskiyou Abolition Project that's named for the Siskiyou Mountains, which we live in and around. Um, and I also work on the national level with a group called the Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons. And that group has been around since 2016 and was born out of a desire to organize uh, explicitly around the intersection between environmental justice issues and prison abolition. Uh, it was born out of, it was born out of earth liberation struggles and in particular the need to pay more attention to prisoner support as we went through the green scare in the early 2000s 
in the early and mid 2000s, uh, which saw the a number of high profile arrests and prosecutions in regards to Earth and Animal Liberation Acts. Um, the campaign to fight toxic prisons has since expanded into organizing any and all ways in which environmental crisis and the carceral state interact. Um, and the way that that plays into some of my regional organizing here with Siskiyou Abolition Project is in regards to disaster response stuff, which is what we're working through across the state of Oregon as we're seeing massive wildfires all across the western side of the state. Thank you. And and tell us a little bit about the coalition that you've formed with other groups recently. Absolutely. So um, Siskiyou Abolition Project started in March as a response to COVID and has quickly shifted into being a a networking place and also a self and community educational hub regarding abolitionist principles. Um, Through that work, we've been connecting with other abolitionist groups all across the state, in particular folks in Lane County Mutual Aid who were supporting uh, a number of hunger strikers in Lane County Jail, including Brian. and also folks from Black and Pink Portland, Critical Resistance Portland, and Care Not Cops Portland, um, several of whom have been supporting um, hunger strikers in Multnomah County Detention Center. And finally, we've also been getting a lot of input from folks who are supporting hunger strikers in Eastern Oregon CI uh, in Pendleton, Oregon. So these three hunger strikes, um, these three hunger strikes and the support crews that were helping them uh, started to come together and started to work together to shine a light on these strikes. Um, and originally we were planning on having a rally for September 9th, this past Wednesday, uh, that we ended up canceling or postponing uh, last minute so that we could divert our energy and attention to the wildfires that were popping up all over the state. Mm -hmm. As a coalition, you all recently put out a list of demands. Is that right? That's true. So in response to the DOC's actions around the wildfires, uh, which have included transferring a number of – transferring everyone from three Salem area facilities – into OFP, a facility that was already almost at its capacity. In response to those DOC actions, we released a list of demands of the DOC and Governor Brown uh, in order to address what we see as a whole slew of iniquities within the system. Uh, So those demands were to, first and foremost, immediately reduce the Oregon prison population by at least 50% including all prisoners and detainees with underlying medical conditions, immunocompromised and pregnant prisoners, and those over 50, as well as all prisoners within one year of their release. Um, We're also asking, or I should say that we're demanding of the DOC that they provide all prisoners with adequate personal protective equipment, including N95 masks, gloves, and sanitizing supplies like bleach, hand sanitizer, 
and and chemical sprays. Um, what we've been hearing is that since the beginning of COVID, most prisoners have received two cloth masks, uh, and that is expected to last them the duration of this pandemic, which at this point, eight months in and with no end in sight, it's very clear that two cloth masks is not nearly enough. And especially given that we're now seeing a lot of smoke and particulate ash matter in the air, uh, there's reason, there's more reason to offer even more protective equipment, which is why we're demanding specifically N95 or better. Our additional demands are at least one free 20-minute phone call per day for every prisoner within uh, Oregon facility uh, and free commissary until the end of these conditions, uh, including the COVID-19 pandemic. And finally, we're demanding a moratorium on new intakes into Oregon prisons, which includes a 50% reduction in Oregon jail population uh, reinstating the right to a fair and speedy trial and an immediate end to cash bail and pretrial detention. These demands ha- came out of similar demands that were being held by the Lane County hunger strikers, as well as demands from a phone zap that Siskiyou Abolition Project initiated at the beginning of COVID lockdown and quarantine in March of this year. That's great. So, just on a theoretical, uh, strategic level, to help me understand your group is, is an abolition group. Um, that's the basis theoretically of where you're coming from, but you're also calling for things like a 50% reduction in the prison population. Obviously, it's in your name. You want a 100% reduction of the prison population, but there's, there's a strategic reason why you're asking for what you're asking. Tell us more about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's actually a number of reasons. First and foremost, of course, we want to see everyone out. It's inhumane to keep people in cages regardless of the cause. And uh, it's been shown that punitive justice is not actual justice and does not lead to transformation, growth, or healing. Um, so absolutely, we do want everyone out of prison. Um, but at this time, we're we're asking for only a 50% reduction because we're, we view this as a chance that we can actually, we view this as an opportunity for us to make some really serious gains in terms of what is capable. And we want to offer something to the DOC and to Governor Brown that's somewhat palatable so that they will be a little bit more acquiescing to our demands. Um, In light of COVID and in light of um, wildfires, we're also asking for these demands just to get people down to the bare minimum of what would be a, what would allow for a sociable, a social distance. So with the, the work you do with fight toxic prisons, you're looking at a, on a broader level at the way that prison systems respond to crises. This isn't the first time that um, that prisoners have been forced, that DOCs, prison systems, have been forced to evacuate in a moment of crisis. It's also not the first time that uh, activists have demanded that prisoners be um, evacuated. But it's a confusing situation because 
you know, in the past, there have been, we've put out demands, activists have put out demands to transfer prisoners out of dangerous situations. But here we have a situation where they did transfer the prisoners, but they transferred them just a few miles down the road to a place where the air is still bad, to a situation where they're in more risk of COVID. So can you place this situation in a broader context for us? Absolutely. So the campaign to fight toxic prisons has been organizing around prisons and disaster relief for a number of years now as an expansion of our awareness that a lot of the major natural disasters that we're seeing and experiencing are a direct result of hundreds of years of climate change and capitalist chaos. In response to that, the Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons has organized a number of pressure campaigns to get state-level and federal-level prisons administrations to recognize prisoners as a part of the human population that needs to be taken care of and needs to, needs to be defended or evacuated in the face of these natural disasters. So this started in 2017 with the Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons working to pressure administrators in the state of Texas in the face of Hurricane Harvey and in Florida in the face of Hurricane Irma. And then again in 2018 in South Carolina where administrators were refusing to evacuate prisoners from the path of Hurricane Florence. What we're seeing here in Oregon is absolutely a much more complicated situation and a development of this. What has happened here is that Oregon Governor Brown and the Oregon DOC have evacuated prisoners out of the path of wildfires, which is a commendable action. But they also didn't put a lot of forethought into it. Or if they did, then what they've done can be described as willful negligence at the least. What they have done is to put people into a situation by transferring all prisoners from multiple facilities and putting them all into one facility, Oregon State Penitentiary. They have effectively made it even harder to manage COVID precautions, particularly those around social distancing, something that's already difficult, if not impossible, to manage under current prison conditions. So the Oregon DOC moved over 1,400 people into OSP, which is a facility that can hold 2,200 and has a current capacity as, as of September 1st of 1,800 people. So they ended up packing that facility, which can hold 2,200 people, with upwards of 3,000 people. And we were hearing reports of people sleeping on the floor, people crammed into spaces with absolutely no way of maintaining social distancing. Beyond that, because of the way that they've been transferring people around, they've had zero regard for protective custody regulations or for the placement of people with rival gangs within the same pod. And so what we've seen over the past couple of days is an eruption of bloodshed and violence over something that the Oregon DOC absolutely could have been aware of and could have taken action around. So it's it's a situation where, you know, absolutely we want to recognize that prisoners are, prisoners by and large are a neglected population, especially in regards to natural disasters and who sees relief efforts around natural disasters. So we really want to be boosting those efforts to keep prisoners in the public eye. 
but we also have to be incredibly mindful of the way that we're doing this. Um, we can't just move people around willy-nilly and think that everything's going to be all right. We have to pay attention to the very intricate dynamics at play, and we have to remember that the communities within prisons are uh, self-sustaining and self-perpetuating communities with their own levels of dynamics at play. Mm-hmm. That's very well put. Well, Ducky, thank you for explaining that situation to us so clearly. Is there anything else you want to add before we let you go? Um, I just want to, I guess if I can have a second to report live from on the ground here in Southern Oregon, where we're organizing these relief efforts and these support efforts uh, around folks that are facing these issues in Oregon prisons, but we're also navigating the crisis of the carceral state outside of the prisons here, uh, where folks have been setting up encampments to help displaced and houseless people who have lost their homes or who are being pushed around because of these fires and are actually receiving some levels of state repression and backlash, as well as backlash from local militias here on the ground in Oregon. And I guess I kind of want to, like, just point out the ways that the carceral state extends beyond just the prison walls and into so many different aspects of our society. Um, I I could ramble on. I'm just going to call it quits, so. though. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out and helping us draw some of those connections. And thanks, of course, for all the work you're doing and you and your comrades up there. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Ryan, and thanks for paying attention to what's going on here. Many thanks to Brian McDonald for sticking his neck out to talk to us, and to Lane County Mutual Aid for their hard work and dedication in supporting prisoners at the Lane County Jail during the recent hunger strike there, and for getting us in touch with Brian. Thanks also to Ducky and everyone else at Siskiyou Prison Abolition and Fight Toxic Prisons for the work they're doing to advocate for prisoners in the midst of this crisis. Portions of the script for this show were adapted from an article by Lena Mercer for Perilous Chronicle. To read Lena's full article and for more information on the groups mentioned here, check out our show notes. That's it for this week's Perilous Podcast, a news and oral history project from Perilous Chronicle. If you like what you heard, please consider donating to help us improve our work and like and rate us on iTunes. Thanks.